Well, good morning, Branch Church. Good morning, Branch Church family online. It's a blessing with you as we continue our worship this morning through the hearing and the receiving of God's word this morning. Funerals are mirrors. You could say memorial services, so either one. Funerals or memorial services, they are mirrors. Mirrors that are so wide and they're so big as to reflect back to you your entire life. Have you ever walked out of a funeral feeling challenged with the meaning of life? Maybe struck with the brevity of life? Definitely hit with the loss of a grief, of a loss of life. What's at the center of all that? It's death. And death, in a sense, is in the middle of that mirror and it smiles because it knows that one day it'll have you. Death is inevitable. And you won't overpower it. You won't win. No one's been able to do that, right? <laughs> but let's back it up for a second. Where did death even come from? Why is death even here? How are we to process the function of death in our lives? Well, actually, death is not something, the answer is amazing. Death is not something that was a part of the original created order. Death is not an evolutionary concept that was here thousands or millions of years before you, and then you showed up and just entered into the cycle of death. That's not how it worked. Death is actually a curse from God. A curse? What are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, death is actually a curse that God gave to people. You see, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they messed up big time. They disobeyed God. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, God said, you will die. Therefore, death has come upon them and upon all their posterity, all their children, all to you and me. And we pass it on to our children as well. But here's the fun part. If God is the one who gives death as a curse, what does that say about his power over the, over the curse of death? If he gives it, surely he can take it away. If he gives it, surely he can beat it. And that's exactly what God has done in his gracious wisdom and in his infinite power, he has given us the answer, the solution, the remedy to death. And as we read John chapter 11, we're gonna see exactly what that is. And we are gonna learn the following, that Jesus is the only answer to the curse of death. And here's the reason why, because he is the resurrection and he is the life. Turn with me to John 11 and we're gonna discuss exactly what that means this morning. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. That's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mar Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus gets some news. What's the news? Someone he loved, a beloved one, Lazarus is ill. Who tells him? Well, actually, it's his sister's. And it's small, but I want to say there's such a human touch of scripture here. Jesus is having personal correspondence with this family, with these siblings. And I long for that for my kids, that long after I'm gone, they would all, not only with each other, but with the Lord, be corresponding and speaking and praying and following and enjoying that love. And, and, and I want that for your children as well. 
But how does Jesus respond to this news? He doesn't cry. He's not angry. He's not hopeless. Now, these are emotions that we would normally probably think or expect might be in people when they hear of such a serious illness in someone. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he says three things, three truths. And these three truths become the controlling. This is my controlling symbol. You're gonna see it a lot today. He, these controlling three truths in which everything else must be interpreted. Without these, it's gonna get messed up. So we gotta have these. Number one, he says this. This illness will not end in death. In other words, this will not be the end of Lazarus on this earth because of this illness. Controlling number one. Number two, this illness will be for the glory of God. Now, this is not a, oh, I gotta praise God because I'm ill. Thanks God for making me sick. No, it's not like that. This is praise God. He's going to reveal himself in the situation. Lazarus doesn't know this. His sisters, they don't know this just yet. And the third controlling truth is this. Jesus is going to be revealed in the process as well. This is amazing. God is going to reveal his amazing glory, one of a kind, weighty glory that nobody else has. And then it says this, and he stayed where he was for two days. Now, if you know the story, it has this kind of brave heart speech kind of feel where William Wallace gets up, his face is painted, the guys are scared, and he starts pumping them up. Let's go, let's go, let's go. The army's right there, and we're going to do this. And then he goes over and takes a nap at the tree for two days. And you'd be like, what just happened? There's almost like this air was just let out of, I don't understand what you're doing. And so there's this kind of feel of, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you waiting two days? He's ill. He needs you right now. Where are you at? God's glory is revealed in his time. And it must be revealed in his time in order for it to truly be seen and in order for their faith to truly be strengthened. Now, Martha and Mary are hurting. They're suffering at this point. Lazarus, he is hurting. He is suffering. But if Jesus moves too soon, the glory of God will not truly be revealed in their lives in the way that it was meant to be. And their faith would not be strengthened simultaneously at the same time. I think there's something possibly in this for us to hear. God's timing. It may not be exactly what we want, but let's be careful not to join in the song of Veruca Salt. Don't care how, I want it now. And we can say that in anger, I want it now in frustration. I want it now in despair. I want it now in whatever emotion you want. We don't wanna say that. We wanna say, God, we want it. Your will be done. Your kingdom come according to your timing and your goodness. Now, something else John says here in verse five. It says he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It says he loved them before he waited those two days. The whole time he is waiting, the whole time they are suffering, the whole time they are wondering, and, and where are you at? Jesus' heart is full of what? Love. Just because you are suffering or you are waiting on the Lord for something does not mean he does not love you. It does not mean that his heart is not full of love as he waits to work or to alleviate or to eliminate suffering or whatever it is you're feeling. And that is where we go back and say, I trust you in your gracious timing, Lord. Verse seven. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go again to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking now to stone you 
and you want to go there again? They're aghast. What? What? What are you? Why are you trying to go back? There's a trap. We just got out of the trap, and you want to go back to the trap? Verse nine. Jesus answered, "Are there not twelve hours in the day?" I I guess so. Does that sound about right? Twelve hours, guys. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, it's a metaphor. Simply, when you walk by the day, you see where you're going, you have a less chance of falling down. You're not going to stumble. You do it at night, you could trip over something, you could hurt yourself. Metaphorically, though, what Jesus seems to be saying is this. When you walk with him, as he's walking in the will of the Father, he's walking by day, you will be safe as you walk with me. In this instance, guys, you will be safe. I'm in the will of the Father. We're going to go near here. You're not going to die. You're going to be just fine as you walk with me in the light of the will of the Father. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. You can't help but enjoy the disciples' response. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. He'll get back up. What's the big deal? Now, Jesus has spoken of his death but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Let me just be clear, guys. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus informs the disciples, Lazarus is ill. We're going to wake him up. He's dead. He didn't finish the second half of that, but if you put it together, Jesus is gonna do something really amazing. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I actually thought this was a negative response from Thomas, but after studying, I think this is a positive response. Thomas is demonstrating faith. Come on, guys, let's go. Let's go with him to the area that's the trap and we'll die with him. We'll be faithful, we'll be strong, we'll be courageous. We'll go and we'll do this. Thomas demonstrates this wonderful faith. It's just a little misguided. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life. I lay it down. I pick it up on on my own accord when I want to do it. So Thomas, I think, can be a lot like some today where they have this youthful spirit, this this wonderful, youthful fire. And we don't want to quench that, but we definitely want to educate it. We definitely want that fire to mature. Fire, even a little bit, can be really wonderful. It can light a candle. It can bring nice warmth to your hands in a house. It can bring a nice fire in your living room. But what happens when that little fire gets out of bounds? A little fire can take down a whole building. A little fire can take down a whole forest. It's important that we take those youthful fires, that youthful spirit, and we educate and we train them in the truth and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't ever want to discourage them from following the Lord. Even with a little bit bit of knowledge, we don't want to discourage anybody because we all start there, right? (laughs) but we do want to grow past that and mature so we can better and more faithfully serve the Lord. I think of it like this. When you're born, you have to learn how to open your eyes. You have to learn how to roll over, sit up, hold your neck up. You have to learn how to crawl, how to walk, how to talk, use the bathroom. You get the idea. Spiritually, when you are born again, in a sense, I feel like a lot of that is taking place. You have to learn all over again how to do those fundamental things now as a Christian. Now as a follower of Jesus, now with a new worldview in which you see things the way they really are, and that takes time. But isn't God gracious to walk with us in those baby and infant stages? I'm so thankful that he's gracious with me because I'm sure that I've said, 
handful of things that were not true. And you look back and go, oh man, thank you God for your mercy and grace in continuing to mature me. We do well to have that youthful fire and encourage it, but let us continue to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Quick plug, there's a doctrine class today after church, 11 o'clock. You don't have to come to that one, but they're there for you and they'll be recorded and they'll be there for you later. We wanna grow, I want us to be mature in the Lord. Continuing on here, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus arrives four days. Illness has already turned into death before he even left. Lazarus is dead. And you go, hold on. I thought Jesus said this illness would not lend in death. What has happened? Okay, remember the three controlling truths. Let's put them in our face. Ready? Number one, what did Jesus say? This will not be the end of him. So if that's true and Jesus doesn't tell lies, which he doesn't, so now I have to reinterpret this. Well, you said he wouldn't die, but he's dead. So that means he's going to, he's going to, that's right. He's going to do something absolutely amazing. That's the only way for that truth to make sense. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Jesus is lurking pretty close to Jerusalem. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. The fact that they have many Jews showing up, it shows that they were a prominent family. Not everybody had a lot of people showing up to help them through their grief. The Mishnah, which is the Old Testament, or not Old Testament, it is the uh, rabbinic uh, sayings compiled together. They said that when it comes to like a funeral, no, even the poor people should have at least two flute players and a mourner. So at the very least, everyone should have two flutes and, and that. The, uh, Mary and Martha here have a lot more than that supporting them. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Martha comes out to Jesus, seems to have a private conversation. And what does she demonstrate in her belief about him at this point? She demonstrates that she believes he has death-stopping power. Jesus has the ability to do miracles to stop people from dying. If you come to a fork in the road and there's death and there's life, Jesus can close the gate and keep people living. She believes that. And even now, God will give you whatever you ask. I believe you're still good with God. And he listens and he hears from you. This is a good start, but it's not a good end. There's something else she needs to know and watch what Jesus does with her. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha's got some good Old Testament theology. Daniel chapter 12, verse two. Some will rise to life and others will rise to everlasting shame and contempt. She had a general abstract understanding of resurrection. This is great. Watch what Jesus does. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And with that statement, Jesus is trying to move Martha from an abstract understanding of resurrection to a personal understanding. That abstractness, it's now in front of you. It's me. I'm the one who raises the dead. I'm the one who actually gives life. 
This is something that is so vital for the world to move from an abstract concept of God to a personal understanding and faith in the son of God. What does it say on the back of our dollar bills? And God we trust. That's a great start. It's not, a, not the best end because you need to believe in the name of the son of God. Believing in Jesus is what saves you, not believing in an abstract concept of God. And so it is so vital that we not only ourselves have moved to that personal understanding, but we encourage other people to move to a personal understanding of who that God is and who his son is. And he says, do you believe this? And that becomes the biggest question. Do you believe that Jesus is truly the one who will raise you from the dead and give you life? We've read it in John 10. He will call the name of the sheep. He will call your name. You will follow him. It is that voice. It is that person. Only Jesus Christ alone will do that. I like what Colin Cruz said. He says, with this statement, Jesus made himself the central hope of the Jewish resurrection. And I think about next time I get to talk to a Jewish person, Lord willingly, I know what the central, personal, visible, actual hope is to what you believe. His name is Jesus. And hopefully with power and passion and by God's grace, deliver it to their heart. Verse 27, here's her response. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. She now gives exemplary faith. You are the Christ. You are the son of God. You are the one who has come from him. These are three things that are important to John and his gospel that you would personally believe. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It seems that Jesus is wanting to have a private conversation with Mary. Calls her, she comes, She's followed by the Jews. What is she doing? Let's keep consoling her. Maybe she's at the tomb. She falls at his feet. She says the same thing her sister says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How does Jesus respond to this? Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus responds here to their weeping. Probably never heard this, so brace yourself. The English here is very soft. Jesus is not feeling emotional grief. He's not feeling upset at their weeping. He actually is feeling outraged. The Greek word, when you look at it and you cross-reference it, this is an outrage. This is an indignation. You could even say Jesus is angry. And you're like, why is he angry upon seeing them crying? I don't understand. The best answer seems to be this from my studies. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 or 5.14. They grieve as men who have no hope. Colin Cruz says this is a faithless 
grieving. They are grieving like this is the end. Uh, Beasley Murray, he says this, unbelief in God and in the presence of the one who is the resurrection and the life, unbelief in that presence of him, this is what led to him being angry. This is what led to him being and feeling outraged after all the miracles, all the teaching, all the things he's done, and they're crying as people who have no hope. Unbelief in Jesus Christ is a sin. There are many sins we can point out to people. Unbelief in Jesus is one of them. You know, I'm not really that bad of a person. I don't kill people. Like I don't murder people and pay my taxes and do my laundry. Like what's the big deal? I'm really not that bad of a person. Well, do you believe in Jesus? Well, no. Well, that's a really big deal on God's sight. That makes him feel outraged. That makes him feel indignation that you would reject belief in the only one who can save you from your sins. Let us not be afraid to point out to people that unbelief is a very serious sin in the sight of God. Verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus is angry. Now Jesus is weeping. It's interesting here that John uses a different word for weeping. Mary and the Jews are weeping, one Greek word. Jesus is weeping, another Greek word. Why would he choose two different words? And they're so close together in the same context. Now, I don't, I don't feel personally that I can make much out of it because John does a lot with synonyms. For example, he uses phileo, brotherly love, and agape, love interchangeably in his gospel. So I want to be very careful not to make too much a big deal out of it. And by the way, some people will say agape is this divine, unconditional God love. Not necessarily, that might be overstating it because Demas loves the world in the scriptures. You can love, you can agape the world. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's only a divine love that only God does, right? You can actually use that in a wrong and an inappropriate way. But I think the context speaks louder here. Why is Jesus weeping? Well, let's put it together. When he heard the news that Lazarus died, what happened? Or that he was ill? Jesus didn't weep. He didn't cry. He wasn't angry. He was not hopeless. He said, this will not end in death. He has not cried. He has not weeped up until this point. Doesn't mean he can't now, but he hasn't. And he's on his way to, I'm going to spoil the story, raise him from the dead. And you put all that together. And it's like, why would Jesus be crying at this point? Again, you could definitely argue. He's crying because he's feeling emotional about his friend who has died. But I actually think, and I agree with the scholars who were really heavy on the side, Jesus is not weeping because Lazarus has died. He is weeping because of their unbelief. The very thing that outraged him is the very thing that broke his heart, unbelief in his glory and his grace. We've seen this, right? I think about, when I think about young, young women who are, who are sleeping around and you, you feel outraged, why would you do something so, and then you, your heart breaks at the same time, oh, Sweetheart, believe in the Lord and, and stop. Verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So there's many reactions here, and this is normal in John. Oh, look how he loved him. He's crying. Actually, I don't think that he's weeping over Lazarus. He's weeping over them. 
He's weeping over them and their unbelief, and they don't even see it. And then these, the other people are confused. Like, he, the blind guy, right? He helped him. Why can't he help this guy? I don't understand why he does this, but he doesn't do this. And there's confusion. And everyone's struggling with kind of how to understand Jesus at this point. That's why it's so important that we understand Jesus from what Jesus says about himself. We come to the Bible and allow the Bible to shape our understanding of God. Even years later, even years as a Christian later, you come and you are being shaped by what God has said. If we don't, it can lead to bad theology, bad things, bad programs. One of them, uh, I read a book on gentle Christian parenting. I've read a book and I read the book, most of it, and I've written a response because I think there are some huge heretical biblical flaws within it. And a big part of it is because there's this preconceived notion of God that's taken and put on the scriptures and then actually leads to a very imbalanced and incomplete view of God, which can be very dangerous. It's one thing to have a philosophy in a certain area. It's another thing when you start putting scripture on it and that becoming the foundation. And that's where I feel a little stronger, like, okay, this is my area. Now, we, now I want to get in there and see what's really going on. We would do really well to come to scripture and to say, God, shape me by what you have said. Even though I have a preconceived notion of you after all these years, keep shaping me. Keep teaching me. Keep filling and pouring into me, Lord. I need to know who you are. And, and it's so interesting that through your experiences, right, it's like we need to have the scripture keep being that controlling truth in front of us. Because experience, right, suffering or heartache or pain or losing a loved one. I have these terrible thoughts where like my kids die, right? And then I start thinking about how I'm going to respond and what I'm going to say. And am I still going to do this? And get, what would I say in front of the, the church? And like, just like, what are you doing? Stop it. They're alive. Okay, just knock it off. <laughs> but if those things were to really happen, I need God and his word to keep shaping my mind to graciously follow him where I'm going to be one broken dude. Verse 30, 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, come to the tomb. It was the, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. There's that word again, deeply moved. Jesus still seems to be upset. It's not deeply moved in an emotional way. This is deeply moved in an outraged, upset kind of a way. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. You've seen it. The community center, it's been in the community forever and the wrecking ball is about to take it out and someone jumps in front of it. No, don't. This is our community center. Martha jumps in front of Jesus. Don't open the tomb, he's dead, don't. And she's trying to stop him. Martha, stop it, you're embarrassing us. Get out of the way. No, what she says though is really important. She says, he's been dead four days. We are confirmed once again in the text, Lazarus is dead. He's been dead how many days? Four days. That is very significant. Now, I don't know if we can trace it all the way back to this time, but just after this time in the Mishnah, I believe it was the Mishnah, it talked about after three days, the spirit would be hovering above the body and then see the face kind of discolored, deform, and the spirit would take off. Now, I don't believe that's true. It's just something they, some people thought, but it shows that even if you did believe that, in the text, four days, he's truly dead. There is no way you can say that he is alive. No charlatan, no magic act going on here. Let's read and see what Jesus does. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? In the face of death, what does Jesus say? If you believe, you will see the power of God move. You will see God in an extraordinary way. A great reminder in the face of hardship to keep believing that even in the impossible, 
God can still show his incredible glory to us. Verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here that they may believe that you have sent me. Jesus publicly prays, not to impress, but so everyone could know that God's glory is about to be revealed. That was the second controlling truth we talked about from the very beginning. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Why would Jesus say that in a loud voice? So everybody would know exactly what it is that is bringing him out. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. But look, 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 look at this. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He came out still wrapped up. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And with three words, Jesus reveals God's glory in the most impressive and most wonderful way in the book of John, where we are climacting in signs. The first half, we've just about finished uh, half of the first half of the book of John. And some people have called it the book of signs. And generally that's a good description because John, remember John 1, 14, the word became flesh. He's revealed his glory, the glory of the one and only from the father, full of grace and truth. How has he revealed himself? He turned water into wine, the paralytic, the blind man. Seven signs culminate now in this one. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. That is massively incredible power. Do you know anybody that can do that? You better believe if they did, they'd be making a lot of money. Be on Shark Tank. I'd like to give you a percent of my business, right? Go to the grave. You, how many people wouldn't want to see uncle so-and-so, your spouse, I would love to go back 500 years and talk to someone. Hey, let's bring them up and see what they think. Abe Lincoln, like what really happened that night, you know? But no, nobody can do that. Only God can exercise that kind of power and he's revealed it to us. And so what does that do? That teaches us this. Jesus is the only answer to the curse of death because he is the resurrection and he is the life. The ultimate application is called to believe upon Jesus. Do you believe upon him as your resurrected savior? Have you moved from a general concept of God, spiritual higher power to Jesus Christ, the son of God? You must in order to be saved for without Jesus, there is no salvation. I wanna give you one more thing here as we respond. In the Heidelberg Catechism written in the 16th century, the first question is this, what is your only hope I'm sorry, what is my only comfort in life and death? What is my only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I, with a body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your only hope in life and death? What is your only comfort in this life and when you die and you face death? That you're not your own, but you belong to who? Jesus Christ. He's our hope. That's it. And when he is your hope, Death will not frighten you anymore because you know the one who has victory over it, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.